Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Boys and men are struggling. That is the key concern driving new work by Richard Reeves, the father of three sons and a Brookings Institution scholar. Reeves' new book of Boys and Men takes aim at how both liberal and conservatives approach masculinity and argues that despite the challenges still facing women in our society, men are falling behind in key areas, including education and the workforce. We'll talk with Reeves about what we can do to change things and work toward true gender parity in America. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. When we talk about gender inequality, we're often referring to the sexism women face. But to discount the way contemporary men are struggling by ignoring how men are falling behind women in education or downplaying how many men of color make less in the workforce than white women is a disservice to the fight for gender parity, writes Brookings Institution senior fellow Richard Reeves. Boys today have little guidance on what it means to be a good man, he argues, and that is detrimental to all of us. We'll talk with Reeves about his new book of Boys and Men and what a positive vision of masculinity encompasses. Richard Reeves, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Marisa. So I thought we could start by sort of setting the table here. You introduced Mm. this phrase male malaise in your book. Can you just start us off by talking about the problem you started noticing among boys and men and maybe a little bit about your personal experience because you're the father of three boys? Yeah, that's right. So I've worried about boys for a long time, 26 (laughs) years and counting, because I have three sons all now in their 20s. And I've raised them both in the UK, where I'm originally from, and in the US. And so look, it comes with the territory to worry about your kids, whether they're (laughs) sons or daughters. But but I I mean, my my day job is looking at social trends, looking at inequality, looking at employment. And I really started stumbling across more and more statistics that made me really worry about boys and men in general. And And actually, boys and men who aren't as lucky and as privileged as mine are, but those who have less economic power. And so it started to come together for me that these things we see as separate problems, like boys are struggling in school, long way behind girls in school now. And the gap in co- on college campuses in the US now is wider than it was in the early 70s when we, t- when we passed Title IX to help women and girls. It's just the other way around now. And so there's been this huge overtaking in, in the classroom. In the labor market, a lot of men are really struggling. Um, most men in the US today earn less than most men did in the late 70s. So there's been something of an actual backwards trend in the labor market 
uh, family life has been dramatically changed in ways that are, are very positive in some ways, but have also left a lot of men scratching their heads a bit about what does it mean to be a dad today? Like, how do I be a good father in a world where the old model of being a father and protector and provider really doesn't work anymore? And I think the result of a lot of those changes is to leave a lot of men disoriented, a little bit unsure of their role, and sometimes despairing. And I think that's why men account for the vast majority of deaths from opioids. They're four times more likely to die from suicide. Uh, and so I think there's something deeper going on here, which as a culture, we really do have to acknowledge. And as you said right at the beginning, Marisa, that's not opposed to the idea that we still need to do more for women yeah, and men. Yeah, I feel like we, we should you know, we, dispense we can, with that. Can, yeah. We can do, well, I mean, I honestly think we could, let's pay ourselves the compliment that we can think two thoughts at once. Yeah. Uh, and that actually we can simultaneously think there's a bunch more stuff that we need to do on behalf of women and girls. But look, here's a bunch of areas where actually it's boys and men who are struggling now. And anybody that frames it as a zero-sum choice, like you've either got to be worried about one or the other, it's like a parent saying, I'm going to choose whether to care more about my son or my daughter. And that's crazy. We can care about both. Yeah. Well, I know this is some of the last words in your book, but I was struck by this that this idea. You say doing for more for men and boys does not require an abandonment of the ideal of gender equality. In fact, it's a natural extension of it. And you say that the problem with feminism isn't that it's gone too far. It's that it hasn't gone far enough. What do you, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that we've really transformed in a, in a mostly positive way the, what it means to be a woman today. If you think about just a generation ago, my own, I'm in my, you know, I'm in my mid fifties, sons in the twenties. Even my parents, they had a very strong sense of what it meant to be be a mother and a wife and so on. We've expanded what women can do hugely. We've really, in a, in a way that's glorious, I think we should celebrate it as one of the greatest liberations of history, which is to say, look, you can be a you can be a woman and be all of these other things. So we've expanded and modernized what it means to be a woman, but we haven't done the same for masculinity. We've modernized femininity and expanded it. But masculinity is a bit a bit fossilized. It's a bit like a museum piece. It's either toxic or out of date or weird or embarrassing. We don't really have a positive script for masculinity that's compatible with all of these changes. And that, I think that gap has been has created a really dangerous vacuum in our culture. Yeah. And I, I think just to set it out at the the top, you say in your book that you are largely talking about cis heterosexual men in this setting. Um, I'm curious, though, you know, understanding that that is the majority of people. But like, mm. do you see that there are sort of things within this conversation that can apply to, you know, same sex couples and, and maybe folks within the broader LGBTQ community as well? Yes. The reason why I've restricted my focus to, let's say, the 95 plus percent of, of men who are cis and heterosexual is because their their challenges are somewhat different to, to men who are LGBTQ in the sense that it's within kind of the relation, the economic relationships between men and women have just been utterly transformed the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really at the heart of, I think, of some of the issues that men are having, as well as these separate and independent economic effects. And I do think that the attention that's paid to same-sex couples and to the challenges around gender are informative for what's happening to straight men if I can summarize it that way, because it's very interesting when you look at same-sex couples, what happens to the pay gap, for example. It's very interesting that gay men are much more likely to enter more female-dominated professions because they're already challenging gender stereotypes. And I think straight men can learn from that. But but I do think there's this, there's this deep sense of, like, if you are 
trapped, if you like, in a sense of what does it mean to be a successful straight man? And in the past, it used to be quite clear around protector, provider, head of household, and so on. That that's a that's a different challenge to the ones that continue to be faced by LGBTQ men. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I think is striking about this book is that it's not political in the sense. You make a lot of policy recommendations, and I want to get to those. But mm. you really take aim, as I said at the top, at both liberals and conservatives for the way that they are framing this question of ma- masculinity, of the role of men in society. I wonder if we could kind of go through some of that and maybe start with liberals. What is it that you see as troubling in terms of the way that the left sort of frames all of this? But the first thing is, and it's where we started this conversation, Marisa, is the the sense that there is a problem on the left with understanding there can be quite deep gender inequalities that run the other way to the way we're used to thinking of it. That gender inequality does run both ways, and it's fine to acknowledge that. There's a real reluctance to 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 admit that. I think for fear, I think that that will somehow diminish the work that's being done on behalf of women and girls. I think that's wrong. It's understandable, but it's wrong. And so there's this kind of blindness in a sense, to the problems that boys and men are having. I think the second problem is when there are problems for boys and men, the left, and this is unusual for the left to do this, typically will will frame it as a problem with the men. So the Mm. the problems of boys and men are very often framed as a problem with boys and men and very often in terms of toxic masculinity, a failure to adapt and so on. And so it's very strongly individualized, whereas I think there are real structural challenges facing boys and men. And the third problem is a tendency to just to sometimes act as if biology has no role to play at all in the way we're men and women. Again, an understandable reaction to the way that biological differences between men and women have historically been used to justify sexism, like, say, for 10,000 years, right? And that's part of the problem here, I think, is that these changes are so recent that updating our view of the world is very hard. But I think that when, if you come across as saying that, that there are just no biologically based differences between men and women at all, then that makes you sound extreme. And it does, and it means that you don't pay sufficient attention to some of the ways in which men and women are different, even if it's on average and the distributions overlap. And and weirdly, it results in a much more, uh, a kind of more tense relation discussion about sex and gender than there should be, because most people out there in the real world go, yeah, there are some differences, mm. but they shouldn't determine what you do in life. And they're not as important as they used to be. And they certainly don't, they certainly don't mean that one sex is better than the other, just because we're different. We can have, we can equality. acknowledge the differences without having a hierarchy yeah, there. kind of. That's right. Yeah. I mean, so I do think it's possible to have equality without androgyny. I don't think we have to completely erase or pretend the differences between men and women or suggest that they're all socialized in order to have mutual and mutual respect. And I think the feminist movement's done a really good job of that, frankly. I think that most modern feminists today actually don't think that there's something inherently wrong with saying with femininity or with some differences between men and women. It just insists on the fact that that doesn't mean any jobs or opportunities should thereby be restricted. Yeah. And then what about on the right? I mean, it seems like you're, the case you're making here is more that it's sort of conservatives have this romantic idea that we could just return to a prior time and that that would somehow be better. Yeah. I mean, it's one, one aspect of it is a mirror image just on this biology point is that conservatives will very often overweight biology. Mm-hmm. So if the left's problem is that just like there are no biological differences, the right takes some biological differences, let's say, in the difference between attitudes towards child rearing among men and women when children are three months old, say, when there is a difference, and then say, and that means moms should stay at home. 
right? That means that means women are supposed to stay at home and raise the kids. They they turn it into a something that determines over a long period of time what it means. Or they'll say, well, of course there aren't female engineers. Women's brains don't work that way, right. which is which is crazy. Of course, you, even if you think there are differences on average, it doesn't mean that you should in any way have restrictions. But the other the deeper problem I think is, and you see this in. There are people like Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, who has his own book coming out on masculinity this year, where it's really they talk about a world where men worked in factories, you could raise families on a single wage, and it was traditional masculinity. And so there is this sense of going back, that we should go back to the world before feminism. And that's both wrong morally, because feminism has been a, a, a wonderful liberation movement, and also just crazy in terms of the real world. The real world is one where 40% of women now earn more than the typical man. And 40% of breadwinners in American families are women. So there is no going back to the 1950s, even if you wanted to, and I certainly don't. Mm. And so it's, it's a very, very, and it's, a, it's not realistic. And all it does, I think, is just turn these real problems that we've already discussed a bit into grievances. And it fuels that kind of anger, which might be good for if you're a, pop, a right wing populist, you want grievance, you want anger, and you don't care if it has any practical or policy implications. And, and so the right at their worst will kind of stoke this problem, the, these problems that men have, but only for their own political aims and with this mythical sense that we can magically go back in time. We're talking about masculinity and the challenges facing boys and men with Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. We're going to take a short break in a minute here, but we want to hear from you. Is this discussion resonating with you? Are you concerned about the boys and men in your life? Are you raising sons? How are you trying to ensure their success? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can also give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Um, and if you have questions directly for Richard Reeves, he's the dad of three boys and he's been looking into this deeply. I have a couple of my own. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. In for Mina Kim. Today with us is Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. We're already getting some comments. Noel says, I tried having a conversation about this and was shut down quickly. It's depressing that we can't talk about the gray without being labeled a traitor. Uh, this is something, uh, Richard, that you address in your book, but you say that actually a lot of people were surprisingly very open to this conversation. Yeah, I think the mood is moving. I, I think people are tired of this sense of like whose side are you on, mm. uh, zero sum framing around politics. People, uh, there's a real appetite to just say, look, the world is complicated and different people are struggling in different ways and that's okay. And and I think that anybody that shuts down the conversation right from the beginning is really doing everyone a disservice. I mean, it's doing the men themselves a disservice if they are struggling and they have questions like my own sons, like if they're struggling with some of what's going on, you don't say, oh, well, you're just being toxic or get over yourself. You, you, <laughs> that you works actually, well with a kid, yeah. I mean, it really works well. But also, just like, it doesn't work very well with men generally. No, of course not. Uh, and, and guess where they'll go? They'll go to the internet and mm. they'll find somebody who is listening to them. And they'll find somebody who will say, yeah, I know you're struggling and it's the fault of all those people over there. And it does become toxic, actually. The then, 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 exactly. Then it can become toxic. But but it, so we have to be very careful about not shutting down these conversations. So I'm sorry, Noel had that that experience, but I just think my honest just keep trying, listen, and most importantly, to understand why people might find this a difficult conversation to have in the first place. Yeah. Because for let's say ten thousand years, gender inequality has almost exclusively been an issue about women and girls. And in the blink of an eye, just literally overnight, we're asking people to say, yeah, yeah, but look, at, but what about boys and men? And I totally understand why that is a difficult thing for people to get their head around. So we've got to understand that and, and and just say, look, let's talk about the stuff where there's still more to do for women and girls and, and allow a conversation to happen around it. Although arguably this has probably been a problem forever. I can't imagine in more like violent times that men were mentally healthy going off to war and doing all these things. Um, but mm. keeping it in this century, um, you know, you talk a lot about gender gaps within education and you have some very specific prescriptions for ways you think could tackle this. And I want to read another comment and have you kind of get into that, which is Michael tweets, my nephews in their 40s could not sit still and pay attention in school the way the girls could. Luckily for them, their school district had a Montessori program for the first three grades. So that really, <laughs> I think, hits mm. something that you talk about, which is this idea of redshirting. Um, can mm. you lay out kind of what are the education you know, gaps we're seeing and, and why you think keeping boys back a year could actually help solve that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's a huge gap in terms of college enrollment. Just, uh, so we see that, that women are now 15 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree, more likely to go to college, more likely to finish college. But they're also twice as likely to be in the kind of highest GPA rank. So you take the top 10% of GPA scorers, two-thirds of them are girls. The bottom, two-thirds of them are boys. Boys are much more likely to be held back a year, et cetera, et cetera. They're, and in the average school district in the US now, the girls are almost a grade level ahead in English, and they've, they've caught up in math. And so there's just across the... And, and in poor school districts, they're ahead in, in both. And I think it's time to realize that they're one of the biggest biological differences of, of all between uh, males and females is not how they develop, but when they develop. Girls just develop earlier, and so they're ready earlier, and they're able to sit still, uh, as Michael indicated earlier. They're just better at sitting in a classroom learning in that way, and they're older. I mean, anybody that's spent any time with a bunch of 15-year-old girls and 15-year-old boys 
cannot pretend that they're the same. Girls do develop earlier, and importantly, they develop certain skills, like the ability to turn in your chemistry homework on time, which is comes <laughs> yeah. from your prefrontal cortex. They just develop that earlier. And so I had have this a school experience system. recently with my kids. He's in a mixed four and five class, mm. and the difference between the fifth grade girls and everyone else is, like, wild. I mean, it, I just, it's, it is. It's like, sometimes it's not like they're a different sex. It's like they're a different species, honestly. <laughs> it's just, I, I had this experience, too. And uh, more future oriented they just got their act together and it turns out that their brains do develop earlier than than boys do and so one of the proposals i make in the book is to just start boys in school a year later that's dubbed red shirting sometimes sometimes it's done for athletic reasons that's not what i'm proposing it for and by just making the boys a year older than the girls that would actually close the developmental gap because boys are between a year and two years behind in terms of brain development especially in adolescence and adolescence is such an important period that I think it makes sense to just anticipate that by enrolling boys in school a year later. But it's part of this earlier conversation we were having about just recognizing there are some differences. And also sitting still, boys do better with like hands-on learning styles. They do need to run around a little bit more. These are differences on average. But let's accept that. And also that's one reason, by the way, I also I also want a lot more male teachers. There are fewer and fewer men teaching in our classrooms. Yes, and I, I loved that problem. point that you make. Yeah, because I've seen this with my own male children, how important that is to have that role model and to have them sort of just understand the energy that they bring. Yeah, it's, the evidence is quite clear that male teachers just treat male behavior a little bit differently uh, to female teachers because mm-hmm. they just they just see, they just see it differently. They see it through male eyes, and and I think in the same way that by the way we need more women, especially teaching STEM subjects. Um, we also need more men in our classrooms, especially teaching things like English. Yeah, and that also gets into a race conversation. I do want to go mm-hmm. to, but first I want to bring in a caller, Pat. You are on from Marin. Go ahead. Hi, thanks so much. Hey, listen, I am a lifelong student of Buckminster Fuller, and I wrote a book about him, and he spoke about the need for a new feminine paradigm of leadership, and that was back in the 70s and 80s, and what came about was great in that women were learned that they could be anything men could be, pilots, uh, firefighters, whatever, but we never taught the men and the boys that it was okay for them to be like women. Mm -hmm. And so what we've left out are all the nurturing beta males. Those are the ones having trouble. And we need to find ways to celebrate the feminine men among us. Ted Lasso was one of them. And we need more (laughs) cultural icons that are not big, bully, Spider-Man, you know, Marvel comics. We need new cultural celebrations of a softer, gentler male. And then you bring those people out. Thanks for the call, Pat. That's really uh, an important point. And she hits on something that another policy recommendation you you make, Richard, which is around this question of STEM versus heel in the Mm -hmm. uh, workforce. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, people probably know what STEM is, science, technology, engineering, and math. And there's been a big push to get more girls and women into those subjects, which has been very successful. There's still more to do, especially in tech. But I talk about the heel jobs, which are the ones in health, education, administration, literacy, and more generally in those caring professions that that Pat's talking about. And there's been no move to get more men into those professions. And in fact, those professions have almost exclusively become more female 
over time. So the teaching profession in the last you know, few decades has become more female. Back in the early 80s, 40% of elementary school teachers were male. That's dropped hugely. Uh, psychology, social work, the only one where there's been a slight increase is nursing, but even that was very, still only one in 10 nurses are male. I, the only thing I'd slightly disagree with, Pat, I don't think we should call them beta males, because what that suggests is that there's this kind of the difference within masculinity. And what we don't want is for men to fit. My own son is an early years educator. I don't think he'd appreciate being called a beta male for that. Instead, what we need to do is expand our definition of masculinity so that it is masculine to care for kids. Um, and when you see my son, he's six foot four, he's a lifeguard, the kids climb all over him, you know, he he does great stuff with them in a, I would say, in, in quotes, a quite masculine way. And so what we don't want to do is send the message that in order to do female jobs, you have to be feminine. Actually, what we need is those jobs to be seen as equally masculine and feminine. But it's interesting that uh, Pat mentioned, I think, pilots, because one of the things I was shocked to discover is that as a share of the profession, we have twice as many women flying fighter jets as we do men teaching kindergarten. Wow. Three, less than 3% of our kindergarten teachers are male, but more than 7% of our fighter pilots are female. Now, I, I'm, I'm all for having women flying our fighter jets, don't get me wrong, but I think as a society, the fact that there are so few men in our classrooms is a bigger problem, and it's one that is getting almost no attention. And among psychologists, among psychologists under the age of 30, only 5% are male. Wow. And so how do you I like connect that, with that? If you're, yeah, and if you yeah. if you're like I, when I went to therapy, I definitely wanted a male therapist for the things I was dealing with. When my one of my sons needed therapy, it definitely was better for him to have a male therapist. But we fast forward this thirty years; it's going to get harder and harder and harder to find a male psychologist. Whereas back in the early eighties, it was a gender equal profession. So we've taken our eye off the ball. We've been rightly focused on getting women into male professions, and we've had huge success. Fifty percent of doctors are women. Fifty percent of lawyers are women. We haven't paid attention to the traditional female ones. And so Pat is exactly right about that. To be masculine also includes those, quotes nurturing professions. And Spider-Man might object to that characterization, <laughs> I'm just going to say. Um, I think I, so too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I thought he's pretty, he can speak for he's himself. He's pretty sensitive. Um, all right. I'm going to bring in yeah. another caller, Richard. This is Noah from San Mateo. Noah, go ahead. Hi, guys. Um, hey. Well, I'll start off by saying I'm a cishet dude in college, so I guess like your, your target affected audience here. And while I, I do understand a lot of the statistics that you're talking about in terms of women having higher pay in certain metropolitan cities, more women in college, um, I feel like the quality of experience of education and of like professional life are substantially different between men and women. It feels like men just have a easier time of it most of the time, to be quite honest, right? Like things like being aggressive or prized in professional environments, um, you know, but even now in upper level education, right, like a lot of the professors themselves are men and are often more sympathetic, like male views, while women often feel sexualized in class. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the actual like, quality of experience as opposed to like, the quantity of experience. Hmm. Thanks for the call, Noah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think some of this is, is timing. So in professors, Professors, for example, we do need to wait a little bit longer to see the kind of pipeline of women coming through. But you're making a broader point, which is about the difference between experience in the education system and experience in the labor market. And I think it's true to say that the labor market is still structured in ways that favor men, or more specifically, they favor people who aren't mothers. Uh, whereas the education system favors girls and women. So I think it, the education system needs to be reformed to be more male friendly. And the labor market, the workplace needs to be reformed to be more female friendly. 
But to be specific, what that really means is to be more family-friendly because women's pay tracks male pay pretty well now uh, until they have children. And by the way, this is this is true in same-sex couples as well. You see, whoever takes the whoever has mm. the child. So you know, you have these women, same-sex couples now, provide a great research opportunity. The stay-at-home mom in a same-sex couple has about the same wage hit as the stay-at-home mom in a straight couple. So what that's telling us is that it's about the division of labor around child rearing and the way that we don't have paid leave, there isn't enough flexibility, you end up on the mommy track. And so really the pay gap is now a parenting gap. And the struggles that most that women are now having in the labor market are largely about the tension between family responsibilities and the workplace responsibilities. And again, we've just... We've failed to reform the labor market and the workplace to take account of the fact that most families now have two earners. That, you know, when was the last time you heard the phrase working mother? I hope it was a while because most mothers work. <laughs> That's not an unusual thing. Or career woman. Those were kind of very common phrases. But I think we'd, we've now got to a point where it's the norm, but we haven't changed our labor market policies. The fact that the U.S. is the only advanced economy not to have paid leave, a federal paid leave policy, I think remains uh, something of an, an international embarrassment. We just don't help families. And what that does, it hurts moms especially. Yeah. We have a comment from a, a listener named Shannon. She says I, I, she's struggling with a lack of intersectionality in this conversation. The authors mentioned men of color, but I don't understand how race orientation and especially gender identity factors into his theories and work. So many more assignment at birth of Gen Z and younger millennials don't identify with man or woman, but is non-binary. The world is opening up to spectrums of gender and a non-binary lens that is the ticket to the issues with gender. Um, if you want to respond to that, great, Richard, but I also mm -hmm. think we do need to talk about intersectionality because mm -hmm. you speak a lot about how this mm -hmm. is a disproportionately affecting not just men of color, specifically black men, right? And that these right. issues around education and the workforce, um, and we'll get to parenting and fatherhood as well, but can you talk about that and like what you found in your research? Yes, it's pretty clear that you need to look at all, everything we've talked about through a, a race lens too. That you've got to be able to think about race and gender simultaneously. And I would add in many cases class as well, because we've seen a big increase in economic inequality. But then very specifically, what you see is that the gaps between black men and black women are wider than for any other group. So in college degrees, for example, for every black man getting a college degree, there are at least two black women. And black men have basically seen wages stagnate, whereas white women have seen wages increase significantly. So whereas back in the late 70s, black men earned more than white women, white women now earn a lot more than black men. For every dollar earned by a white woman, a black man earns 84 cents. Now, a black woman earns a little bit less than that as well. So it's making the point that I think Shannon's getting at here is that we do have to think beyond these binaries. And in particular, I argue that black men are at a disadvantage in the education system, in the criminal justice system, in the labor market, not despite being male, but because they're male. Mm. That black men are seen as a, a threat. There are stereotypes about black men, which is why you know, ban the box didn't work, because people, the employers assume that black men are more likely to have been criminals, etc. Uh, and so there's this huge set of issues. So the intersection of racism and sexism experienced by black men means that we just have to think about these, these, these things differently. And there are very, very few metrics on which black men aren't behind not only white men, but also behind black women. Black women are actually upwardly mobile. Um, black women are doing better in the education system, etc. So there's this growing divergence of trajectories between black women and black men. 
And so it's important to be able to think both of these thoughts at once. And that's where intersectionality really comes into play because it allows us to look at the specific problems of specific groups. Can you hit on this issue too? I mean, it's true. It's still a very small sliver of the population, but more people are identifying as non-binary. And I, I wonder if you think that that will impact the tenor of this conversation. It could. Uh, right now, it's obviously it's very early uh, where we've seen this increase, um, and so we're still and we're still talking about a very small minority, even within Gen Z. What I think is positive about it was that it might help to sort of shake the kaleidoscope a bit more around. What does it mean to be male and female? I think that's a good thing. But I think we have to be realistic about the fact that most people are probably going to continue to define themselves as largely masculine or feminine and in line with their natal birth. And that's also okay. So the way I think about this is that there's danger sometimes that we think that you have either you can have exceptions to rules and both can be okay. So you'll see this kind of moral panic on the conservative right sometimes saying, look, if we if, if some people become non-binary or transition, that will destroy the whole gender binary, like no one will know who they are anymore. There won't be any men anymore. This is kind of a Josh Hawley line, actually, is that there's a war against the very idea of men and women. So that's one extreme. But the other extreme is to just say, look, everyone has to fit into this, you know, this binary. That's also not true. And so my basic view on this is that it's probably going to remain largely the case that most men and women will define themselves in line with their birth. Some people won't. And it's and both are fine. Again, back to this thing, you don't have to choose between a world where everyone fits into a neat binary or a world where there is no difference right. between men and men and women. And again, most people just living in the middle. And we, we absolutely can manage both those thoughts at once. It's almost like the political discourse gets it wrong. It's so shocking. Um, <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> um, well, after we're going to take a break in a minute. And after that, I want to talk more about parenting and fatherhood. Um, but to, to kick us off, we have a listener who wrote in, I read that boys actually require a more gentle and sensitive approach and upbringing. My son was raised that way, but I observe him being hard on on his own son, expecting him to do things he's reluctant to do. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Just about a minute till break, Richard. Yeah, it's certainly true that boys are more sensitive to their environment than girls are. That's in the family, in the neighborhood, in the school. Girls are a little bit more resilient through adversity than boys are. And so whether or not it's exactly around being gentle, it's certainly about being aware that the environment within which boys are being raised has a huge impact, if anything, more than for girls. And so the idea of the kind of rugged individualist, they'll be fine, is just wrong when it comes to boys. Yeah. We are talking about masculinity and the challenges facing boys and men with Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, what it, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. We're going to keep talking to Richard after the break, and we want to hear from you. What are your questions? What are you concerned about if you're raising boys? And what does masculinity mean to you? You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. You can also give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st, 
Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. We are talking to Richard Reeves about masculinity in America today, the challenges facing boys and men. And I want to bring in one of our callers, Wyatt from San Jose. Wyatt, go ahead. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I am a cisgender heterosexual white man who's benefited from most forms of privilege. And I spend most of my life in the female dominated environments um, that you mentioned earlier that a lot of men do not experience. And I'm very grateful for having done so. But having had that experience and having spent my life as a feminist and having avoided, to the best of my knowledge, most forms of toxic masculinity, I was wondering if you could help to define this conversation by providing what you think is a healthy definition of a masculine gender role, because I can't personally think of any that I have not seen perfectly comfortable expressed and carried by strong, capable women that I've worked alongside, whether they were doctors or professors or soldiers. Um, So I I don't know anymore what a healthy masculine gender role should look like or if it's even necessary. So if you have a definition for that, Um, I think it would be super helpful to inform the conversation that we're having. Thanks, Wyatt. Richard, Mm. what do you think? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a deep question, of course, Wyatt. So thank you for calling in with that. There are there are two two ways we can think about this. One is it just doesn't make any sense to talk about femininity and masculinity at all. And maybe this is underlying Shannon's earlier comment as well, which is to, to, to get rid of all these differences. And you don't need a sense of what does it mean to be a mom or a dad or a man or a woman, etc. And I'll, I'll be honest, that used to be my view. But the more I've looked at what's happening, the more I felt as if we do need some sense of positive ways to be male which are distinct from, although overlapping with women. And again, it's back to this sense of like, can we imagine a world where there are some differences on average, but they don't necessarily determine how an individual will, will be. And, and I do think things like, for example, let's talk about physical courage and risk taking. Uh, it is true that men, and the evidence on this is very, very clear, are just much more likely to risk their lives to save a stranger. Right, when it's not part of their job. They just are. And that's a good thing. Uh, most of us hopefully won't be affected by that, but when it happens, we should we should celebrate it. And men, maybe if they are willing to be a little bit more risk-taking, that does seem to actually influence how companies do. I found this great study, which might help a little bit, which is that actually companies where it's all basically run by men, they make more profit, but they're more likely to go bankrupt. Companies that are run mostly by women, they're a bit less profitable, but they don't go under. Now, which is better? Well, it depends. I mean, for me, that's an argument for needing an argument for diversity in our boardrooms, because if if there are these differences on average between the kind of risk appetites between men and women, then that's a good thing. And and I think maybe this will lead to the next point, which is that I am convinced that fathers do play a distinct role. Yes. Again, I wanted to go there next. You're on it. (laughs) So I do think like being being a dad is different in some quite important ways to being a mom. And that's okay. 
um, so long as, again, we don't use it to determine people's life choices. And so I think a little bit around confidence, a little bit around, you know, appropriate risk taking, etc. Men are a little bit more physical. Uh, I think that's okay. Uh, and again, as long as we don't over-determine those differences, then we don't have to obliterate them altogether. Why it's quite right, of course, no one is saying there can't be women, women who are like this. Like I, I come from the UK where Margaret Thatcher became prime minister in 1979 when only 5% of MPs were women. And I think most people would agree that Margaret Thatcher had a lot of, quotes, masculine traits about her. So there's nothing about this which says the distributions don't overlap. But it is about saying... There are some differences. And as I say, I think being a dad is one that's neglected. Well, you talk about the importance of, you know, a father figure or a father specifically Mm. in somebody's life. And um, I'm curious. Well, first of all, then how how would you frame that if we are talking about same sex couples? Like is Mm -hmm. is is the effect of a positive male figure in somebody's life who is stable and and, you know, bringing these positive attributes? Does it have to be a father? No, it doesn't have to be a father. And so there's this term, in, so in uh, a biological father, a term in sociology called social father. And I'm really struck by this evidence, again, back to the intersectionality point that Shannon raised, is that actually in black neighborhoods, in predominantly black neighborhoods, black boys do better when there are more dads around, even if it's not their dad. So there's something about just being dads in the neighborhood, and it has to be dads. <laughs> um, it does seem so. The the places where there are dads seem to make a difference. And so one thing that that struck me is actually among the same sex female couples that I know who've had children, they actually usually are very intentional about making sure there are other men in those children's lives, whether it's an uncle, a godparent, and so on. So that to me, that's very strong evidence that. Same-sex couples, women realize that it's actually helpful, particularly to their boys, but more generally for them to be kind of strong, very engaged, positive men in their lives. Well, why do they think that? And it is because there is something a little bit different that men bring to the party as fathers, especially in adolescence. It turns out that that's kind of where some of the dad magic kind of happens is, is, is in those later half of childhood where they're learning how to be in the world, they're taking risks, they're learning, they're kind of getting out of the nest, if you like. And that does seem to be where dads, again, on average, they do seem to be a little bit more involved and engaged in that. And adolescence is a period generally that we, we ignore. And so I actually think there's something to be said for, like mums might be a little bit better in the very early years, like for tots, but dads might be a little bit better for teens. And again, that's okay. Uh, what's important is that we balance it out over the course of the of the child's life and that we both bring something to the party. Again, most of what we do is, is completely substitutable, right? What dads and mums do is mostly the same. But there are some things like that. Learning to take appropriate risks in adolescence seems to be somewhere where dads have a bit of a competitive edge over mums. And that's that's good. That's a good thing. We should celebrate that and not shy away from it. Yeah. I got a, a comment from Chris says who says, being a stay-at-home dad of two boys has allowed me to address the gap in male emotional development directly, but I still feel judged, like I'm, quote, retired or having given up on a career. <laughs> Uh, is that yeah. something you've heard yeah. quite a bit? Yeah, no, I've experienced it, Chris. I mean, I was a stay-at-home dad too. And uh, I, I talk about this in the book that, that they, the school, when the kids were sick or they'd gotten hurt or yeah. something, they would, ring my, they would ring my wife, even though she was hundreds of miles away. Uh, and I was a mile away. And so eventually they got the hang of it, that they kind of called me. And, and I agree that there's still, there's still a lot of gender norms around the appropriateness of that. But I'm very encouraged by the rise in the number of stay-at-home dads who are breaking down some of these stereotypes. And what I like about that is that it just kind of recognizes that, you know, we can each play our part. I don't think we have to decide, you know, I've raised three kids. Let me tell you, it takes forever to raise children. Uh, And so the idea that you sort of determine who's going to do which role right at the beginning, 
and that determines the next 20 years is just crazy. I think it's much better to think of parenting and co-parenting as more like a kind of relay race. It's like you take someone goes a bit faster, someone goes a bit slower. And that way you're, you're sharing both the joys and the costs of parenting between you. But it doesn't have to be at exactly the same time. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, I mentioned before, I, I'm the the mom of two young boys. And I, I'm wondering mm. if there are specific things you see that parents and, and, and other adults in the lives, teachers, you know, folks who are interacting, that they could do better when we talk about interacting with both young boys and adolescents. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is a thing not to do, which is a, a negative place to start. But, but it's like, don't pathologize or make it toxic, uh, especially if you're coming at this as a mom or as, or as a woman kind of more generally, because there are some of these differences that boys have around sex drive, especially in adolescence, around physicality when they're young. There's this huge gap, for example, in physical aggression at the age of 17 months between boys and girls, huge gap. Uh, and so what we don't, of course, we need to learn how to manage that, but we have to be very careful not to pathologize it. So I do very strongly suggest that people don't talk about toxic masculinity, and um, particularly to their own kids. I very strongly suggest you never use the phrase, why can't you be more like your sister? Mm. Uh, which is, or, or even think that, because sometimes there's a sense of like, what's wrong with you? And we have a, almost have a feminine standard against which we judge how boys are doing. But the other thing is also like really get in there around the schoolwork stuff. I mean, boys are, the education system is just not structured to be quite as male friendly as it is female friendly. They are going to struggle a bit more with homework and organization. That's okay. They're not, they, although one in four boys are now defined actually as developmentally disabled, I don't think that's right. I actually think what's happening is that the system just isn't working as well, especially for younger boys. It's just expecting them to have more organizational skills than on average boys have so get alongside them and make sure they don't come away with the sense that being good in school is a girly thing because I'm very worried about that I'm very worried that educational success starts to seem feminine or even more feminine than it is right now and so really leaning against that and that's why again I want more male teachers especially in subjects like English like my own English teacher I tell you, if he wasn't a man, I don't think he could have brought working class 16-year-old boys to tears reading poetry. But he did. Uh, and so just getting men into these roles and into our into lives is so important, which is what we were talking about earlier. Well, I want to bring in another caller, Mark. Excuse me. Mark from Berkeley. Hello. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I work in higher ed where retention and graduation rates really give us a clear snapshot of like how inequities across gender and racial lines are persisting because we see that black and Latino men are staying in school and graduating at much lower rates versus other students. So a lot of the recommendations in seeing the field is to say, uh, improve help seeking behaviors of men, whether that's in seeking academic support or like uh, general health or mental health services, but they're usually in the form of programs that try to teach and fix men but I find that so problematic because it really overlooks the cultural and systemic conditions within the institution that make it difficult for men to seek help in the first place. So what I, I guess what I'm saying is that the system itself, and by that I mean the people who work within those institutions who shape these like, processes and practices meant to support students equitably, have an imperative to look deeply in how they might be making it more difficult for Black and Latino men to succeed. All right. Thanks for the mm. call, Mark. Uh, I mean, this gets at a lot of what you're talking about here, right? These structural right. challenges within our broader society. 
Yeah, and also the danger that that it is a sort of feminine identity for for men uh, that they're experiencing in college. I mean, men are much less likely to enroll in college, but also, as Mark suggests here, they're much less likely to complete. So there's a 10 percentage point gap in completion rates at four years for men and women enrolling in a uh, four-year degree. And in fact, once you control for GPA and test scores and so on, being male is the biggest risk factor for dropping out of college bigger than anything else. And uh, and so there's something going on here with the way that men, and he's right, especially black men and Hispanic men, are doing on college campuses. And I also agree that having resources that are available to them, specifically as they're struggling, is very important. But there are none. The University of Oregon has a men's resource center that does try to do some of this work. But I still think we're stuck in this idea that why should men need help? Even on college campuses where it's 60, 40 women now and women are doing much better than men, I still think it's really hard for people to get their head around the sense that we actually should help men. So there's lots of women's centres on campuses. There's lots of women's commissions on campuses and they're doing great work and I think we should keep them. There are no men's resource centres. There, there is nothing there that's specifically aimed at men um, and especially men of colour. And again, I think it's just we've got this lag. It's just really hard to persuade people in colleges that in their institutions it's actually the men who might need more help because it just goes against it goes against the narrative so strongly but in that institutional setting it's true uh, and especially as uh, mark says for for men of color and so Absolutely. i think let's have more let's have more research yeah we're talking about masculinity and the challenges facing boys and men with richard reeves he is the author of boys and men why the modern male is struggling why it matters and what to do about it you're listening to forum i'm marisa lagos in for mina kim so, Richard, OK, we talked about redshirting boys, potentially keeping them back a year to start kindergarten later than girls. Um, we talked about the need for more male teachers and role mm-hmm. models. What other specific policy recommendations are you giving in this book around both education and, and sort of broader workforce, um, you know, family life a lot? You know, some of this is, is individual work we can do, but a lot of it is broader. Yeah, and I think that's part of the challenge is to say look, there's a there's a set of policies here, right? We can't just expect families and individuals to do this themselves. Just as the same way we needed structural changes to help women, uh, we need some to help men. And so in education, the third thing I'd add in education is more vocational learning. Everything else equal, it does seem as if boys and men do a little bit better with applied forms of learning. And so more apprenticeships, a thousand new technical high schools is one of the things I, I call for, just because those sorts of that style of learning seems to help boys and men a little bit more than women and girls. To get men into these professions we talked about earlier, it's going to take money and effort. We can't just sit back, I think, and, and, and look at how these professions are just losing their men, like psychology and teaching. So I think we need specific scholarships and subsidies to get men into those professions, just as we have had them for getting women into STEM professions. I think that we should keep both. And then as far as fatherhood is concerned, I really think we need an equal and generous paid leave policy that allows mothers and fathers to take time off to raise their kids in a way that's equitable and that's independent so that fathers should have an independent right to time off to care for their kids. And one of the reasons for that is because more and more fathers are doing their fathering outside of marriage or even outside of cohabitation. That's a result of all the family changes. And so we we have to we have to say that fathers matter whether or not they're married to or living with the mum. Right now, we're stuck in this awkward place where... Many people still think you have to be married to be a good dad, and that's wrong. And the result of that is that our laws and policies just haven't caught up with the fact that 40% of kids are born outside marriage. Most kids to non-college educated mums are born outside marriage. And so we need a new way of supporting fathers, which includes equal and independent paid leave.
We had a one listener asked about the question of all boys schools, if that works better during elementary age specifically. Um, You have strong Mm. feelings about all gendered schools, I believe. Well, I wouldn't say this. I mean, I have strong views based on the evidence, which is that I don't see very strong evidence that they work all that well. They don't do any harm, to be clear. But but I looked hard at this because a lot of people said, what about all boys schools? And the, the evidence just isn't there that they make such a huge difference. And that's why I think that actually we could start boys and boys and girls should go to the same schools. I just think we should start boys a year later because they develop more slowly rather than re-engineering the entire school system to make it single sex. I'm not opposed to single sex schools. And as I said, there's no evidence that they're harmful. And there might be some evidence that they're particularly good for black boys. So back to this intersectionality point is, again, it might work for some rather than others. But I think what's going on here is that People are arguing for all-boys schools because they see fewer and fewer all-boys spaces in mm-hmm. society generally. And so they think we'd better do it in school. And so, for example, the decision of the Boy Scouts to go co-ed uh, and to allow girls in throughout. So there are no Boy Scouts anymore, uh, just as Boy Scouts I mean, the, the, as an institution, whereas we kept, we kept Girl Scouts. And so why is that? Why is it that we couldn't actually even allow the Scout movement to have some separation um, after school sports? for boys and for girls. And so I think what people are seeing is, particularly maybe don't have a strong father figure, there's just a lack of male spaces. And so I think that the push for all boys schools is really a symptom of the fact that we just don't see enough of those spaces for boys. But we can we can do those without having to re-engineer the whole school system. We can do them after school. We can do them in community groups. We can do them in YMCAs. We can do them through the scout movement or whatever. So it's like yes and, right? You're saying that there needs to be some spaces for that, but it's not necessarily bad to have co-ed <laughs> spaces right. as well. I think like that's my right. Play, I mean, my kids play on co-ed so- soccer teams, and I think there's a lot of benefit to that too, right? That they're getting sure. that the, the different exposure on both Definitely. sides. Same in school. I, I think that actually there's a lot. I, I, wor- I don't have good evidence for this view, to be clear, but I worry a bit about people who go to single sex schools and how they're going to do in the kind of work, in, you know, general life. I think it's good to learn how to conduct yourself kind of around the opposite sex, assuming you think there are differences between them, of course. Um, and, that, and that's a good thing. And so but what that doesn't mean is that you should somehow then not have any spaces, whether athletic or, you know, community or whatever they are that are separate for boys and girls. I think it's great that you can be a Girl Scout and just go and do stuff with and Mackenzie Scott just gave a, a huge donation to the Girl Scouts partly because it's a great place for girls to do STEM and all kinds of other stuff in an all female environment great but I think the same applies to male spaces too yeah we have been talking with Richard Reeves about how masculinity is changing in the United States thank you so much for your time today Richard thank you for a great conversation Marissa uh We are going to be back tomorrow to talk more. Um, Another thanks to Richard Reeves, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he does research on the middle class, inequity, and social mobility. Don't miss his new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. I'm Marisa Lagos, in for Mina Kim today. This segment was produced by Jennifer Ng and Caroline Smith. I'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk about Alzheimer's research and what new therapies might be available. Please join us.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.